All right, this morning we're looking at the sixth beatitude, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart. I wonder if we didn't know how it went, how we would finish that sentence. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The grammar here makes it clear, as with all the other Beatitudes, only they shall see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they and they alone shall see God. And thus, the purity of heart in view here is not optional. It is the non-negotiable root of Christian life and Christian vision. As Calvin puts it here, purity of heart is the mother of all virtues. Purity of heart is the mother of all the virtues. And so we'll make two main points here, purity in heart and seeing God. They're there on your outline. Purity in heart and seeing God. So first then, purity in heart. Now at the outset, we have to ask a question. What is meant here by heart? Because the heart is the root of the issue. Blessed are the pure in heart. And many of you know this, right? By heart, Scripture means the center of the person. Right? The deepest seat of personality. The inner man. The wellspring of our lives. So the heart is the person. But the person in their deep interiority in the inner mystery of their being. And so the heart includes the intellect. It includes the emotions. It includes the will. It includes the imagination. For the Hebrew mind, thinking, thinking is done in the heart. As a man thinks in his heart, So he is. So he is. So every motion, every twitch of your soul has its origin in the heart. And thus the book of Proverbs warns us, right? It warns the covenant people. Guard your hearts. You know the way Adam was to guard Eden. Guard your hearts because out of them flow the issues of life. We tend to think the issues of life can just be defined externally. This situation, that situation, this person, that person. The issues of life flow deep out of the interior resources of a person. So there's a kind of holy introspection here. There is such a thing as morbid introspection. But this is a holy interiority. Guard your heart with all diligence. Be about it. Because the issues and springs of life flow from there. So the heart embraces the total person in the depth, in the breadth of their existence. And this presents a daunting challenge for us. We may not often think about it, but it presents a daunting challenge. Because the heart, Jeremiah says, and he's speaking to the covenant people as well, by the way. He says the heart is deceitful above all things. Like it's desperately sick, he says. It's important here to know what you're up against because 
if we don't grasp this, we haven't even climbed into the ring yet. As our Lord would put it, again, speaking to the covenant people, it is not what goes into a man which defiles him, but rather out of the heart proceed all wicked thoughts, words, deeds, adultery, murder, theft. So the heart, then, is the seat of all of our troubles. It is the enemy within the gates. And the ones called to guard the heart and watch over the heart are the ones with the corrupt heart. And here you can see the problem. Dylan has this wonderful little morality tale. It's a song called The Man in the Long Black Coat. In it, a preacher is preaching. The preacher says, every man's conscience is vile and depraved. And then he continues, the preacher does, saying, every man's conscience is vile and depraved. You cannot depend on it to be your guide when it's you who must keep it satisfied. That's the problem. Well, I just go by my conscience. I just follow my heart. You cannot depend on it to be your guide because it's you who are keeping it satisfied. Right? This is the slippery difficulty of being a human person, even a redeemed human person in a fallen world. So the condition here cannot be taken lightly. It cannot be underestimated. The heart in biblical parlance is a kind of labyrinth of self-justification and deceit. Again, even in the redeemed. In Ephesians 4, Paul says... You, you, you're, you're to put on the new man. But he goes on and says, well, the old man, you know, the old man does not concede, right? The old man does not sign any treaties. He says, your old man is, present tense, is being corrupted according to lustful deceits. The old person that you were, that guy, he gets worse over time as you keep mortifying him and putting on Christ. So this is especially a dangerous situation for those who fancy themselves pretty good people. Pretty good people. The uh, 19th century Russian novelist Ivan Turgenev said, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like. But I do know what the heart of a good man is like. And it is terrible. Right? It's terrible. It is, after all, right? It is the good, it's the decent religious people, the keepers of the Torah, the lovers of the law, the protectors and guardians of all that is holy, the radically, radically committed ones, right? The conservatives and the traditionalists to whom Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law. Who would ever think that the phrase teachers of the law would be preceded by woe to you? You Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside. You clean, inside, he says, inside you're full of greed and indulgence. You're whitewashed tombs. You look splendid on the outside. Inside, he says, you're full of dead men's bones. They had good, these people were in good standing in the covenant. Right? They were circumcised. So much for the good people. Now, when we talk about purity of this heart, there are two angles that Jesus has in view here. The first is he's talking about interior purity, being cleansed of our moral defilement, which goes down and is twisted and deep and is tangled up with everything that's in us. 
Right? He takes the, the Pharisees to task, we just heard, for their obsession with outward ritual purity. But here's a key point, right? The, the human heart is always by nature a Pharisee-like heart. Right? It's a law-keeping heart. Right? The whole book of Galatians is written to deal with this problem. It's a heart which thinks, if I do this, then God will do that. If I don't do this, then God won't do that. If I do this, then God will bless. If I do that, then God will curse. Well, we've had that experiment, right? It's called Israel. The human heart is a Pharisee kind of heart. But when we think Pharisee, we think open hypocrite, people that almost have horns on, you can spot them, that's a Pharisee. Right? Jesus thinks Pharisee, he thinks law-abiding, Torah-keeping religious person. So it's easy to deceive ourselves and get things precisely backwards here. Find ourselves more concerned with outward appearance than inward substance. We're not immune to this, right? We want to appear just and righteous. We want to be, we're concerned too much, I think, with convincing others, right, that we're pious rather than engaging, actually engaging in the hard but glorious work of becoming pure in heart. So this internal purity of heart, it's an indispensable, indispensable prerequisite to Christian life and worship. And you can see it in Psalm 24, which was the Old Testament lesson, and that's the text that Jesus is referring to here. If you read Psalm 24, you will see it takes purity of heart to ascend into the, the hill of the Lord, and the text goes on to say, this is the generation of those who seek your face, O God. So purity of heart and seeing the face of God are conjoined in Psalm 24, and Jesus is alluding to that. There we're told that no one can ascend the hill of the Lord. No one can stand in his holy place except the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Except the person with complete inner integrity. With a passion, right? A vertical drive to see the face of God. A drive which has its source deep in the mystery and the state of a person's heart. And to attain to this purity, we have to learn to cry out. Right? To cry out. We saw this in the uh, prayer of confession. As David does in Psalm 51, he prays for the Lord to create in him a clean heart. David's a redeemed person. He wants a clean heart. He wants purity, he says, in the inner secret place. That place no one can see. That place that's so far deep down inside of me that I can't get at it directly. I ask God to get at it. So what is needed then, and this is again important to gauge what we're doing. What is needed here is an act of divine creation. When David says in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, he uses the word for creation from Genesis 1. Right? This is a cry for interior recreation. We recognize in the midst of our, our depths, our entanglements, that we need to be wholly made new. And this is why the new covenant then is depicted as God doing what? Taking out the old heart of stone? Putting in a new heart of flesh. Right? Writing his law deep in the interior recesses of our heart, sprinkling our hearts clean, washing us, renewing us. This is the essence of the new covenant, this deep interior cleansing and renewal. 
So that renewal is a part of what Jesus means by purity. There's a second closely related aspect that he has in mind. And that's the idea of being single-minded. Single-minded. Or if you will, having a single undivided heart. Purity of heart. 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, right? Purity of heart is to will one thing. It's a beautiful line. Purity of heart is to will one thing. So so the pure in heart have one and only one overriding, driving will. They see God and God alone as their only hope, their refuge, their defense, their fortress. They will his pleasure. They will his glory. They will one thing. They seek to love the Lord their God with all. That's in other words, right? All. Willing one thing is loving God with all of our hearts, not part, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. This is what it means to will one thing. And such a person then is free, or at least yearning to break free, of the tyranny of the divided self, which is one of the great tyrannies of our time. Right? A person who wills one thing, their inner life is not fragmented into hundreds of unrelated or loosely cobbled together pieces. Right? This is an immense issue for us because we live in an age of perpetual distraction, enormous mental and emotional clutter, novelty, rivers of triviality, endless data, endless provocations to outrage and anger, flitting back and forth from one thing to another thing, short attention spans, emotional Turbulence, right? Intellectual instability, double-mindedness, James calls this, being tossed here, tossed there, living your whole life on the surface of things, usually in some sort of jitter, some sort of jitter, some sort of reactionary mode, right? Some sort of cultural ADD that's gripped the whole country. We all have attention deficit disorder now. But the purity in view here is an indictment on all of this. Right? It says you, have, you are living a disintegrated life. You have to live an integrated life. You are willing 77 different disjointed things. You need to will one thing and bring all your other things into an integrated, coherent whole. And so the word for purity here is used to pure water, pure metals, pure grain, pure feelings. Thus, Jesus pronounces his benediction. He says this is the flourishing person, the blessed person, the whole person. Right? The person whose heart is single, unalloyed, unmixed, unadulterated, undivided. This is a people who have heeded the rebuke of James, who's also speaking to the church here. James speaks to the church. It says this. Imagine addressing your congregation and saying this. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Right? Thus, a, a pure, a single heart here is very much like what Jesus will speak of later in the Sermon on the Mount when he says you have to have a single eye. Right? If your eye is full of light, meaning a whole, single, wholesome, generous, non-covetous eye, then your whole body, he says, will be full of light. This is the goal, Paul tells us, 
And, and we should really perk up when Paul starts to say, this is the goal of what I'm doing. He tells us in Timothy, he says, this is the goal of our apostolic uh, instruction. What is the goal of apostolic instruction? Love from a pure heart and a sincere faith. Now, this state, of course, is not natural to us. It comes only and it comes continually through the gospel. I want to be clear. I'm not preaching the law to you. I'm preaching the gospel. But the law prepares you for the gospel. The gospel will drive you back to the commandments. It comes only to the gospel, through the gospel of the one who is the only pure man, the only one with a holy, undivided, integrated heart, the one completely without guile, the only one in whom we shall ascend the hill of the Lord. And then we're told, we're told in 1 Peter, that having believed the gospel, you've embraced the gospel. That's why you're here this morning. In obedience to the truth of the gospel, Peter says, you have had your hearts purified for a sincere and fervent love of the brothers. So there's two errors to avoid here, right? One is a kind of legalism which says, I've got to get my heart pure. But there's another reaction on the other side, which is, well, I can't get my heart pure. Jesus Jesus did it all. That's also a half-truth. It's a glorious half-truth, but it's not the whole truth. Yes, Jesus did it all for you, but now he wants to take his purity and have it wrought and manifested in the depths of your being. That's why James can say, purify your heart. James doesn't say, look, Jesus did it all for you. Don't worry about getting your heart pure. So we want to to avoid this, right? We want to avoid the law, pure law. We want to avoid some sort of distorted gospel, which says Jesus did it all. What we want is, Jesus did it all, and now in Jesus, what Jesus did is fleshed out in the depths of my being. Having been washed, having been purified, we become defiled easily. And thus, we have to continually seek renewal. This is what the Christian life's about. Mortification, vivification, union with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Putting to death, presenting your members as alive from the dead. And then doing it again 45 seconds later when you mess up again. We have to cry out. And there's a, there's, a, there's a lovely text. There's a favorite text of mine. It's in Psalm 86. The psalmist knows about this divided heart. And he, says, he prays to the Lord. He says, oh God, unite my heart to fear your name. Isn't that like a beautiful thing? Like, like my heart is, is split into pieces. Dear Lord, unite it. Integrate it. Make it whole. Make it single. Make it one. Make it pure so that I can be focused on God attentive and riveted on the divine glory and fear your name. And I want to give you a benefit, really a a, a glorious benefit that comes from this purity of heart. It is the key to spiritual vision, to a kind of legitimate Christian mysticism. You can see this kind of a photo negative of this, when Peter says, if you forget, like if you look behind in your past, and you forget your purification from your sins, he says, you then become short-sighted or blind with respect to your future. Remembering your purification is the key to vision in the future. Forgetting your purification means we start to see things in a stunted and truncated way. Right? Purity of heart enables you to see. Who doesn't know this, right? You go through a situation with yourself, with a friend, 
with a spouse, with your children, with your job, and there's a bu- maybe there's a bunch of turbulence, you're trying to sort it all out, and it takes time before you realize, oh, you know, I didn't really handle that well, or I got that wrong, or I didn't see that person right, I didn't see myself right, I didn't see the situation right. Often takes distance, right? We are not seeing creatures right. We, we don't see things properly with the right sense of proportion and order and clarity and charity and temperance. That's because our hearts are not right, right? And we, who doesn't go through this, right? Every, every couple of days you look back and think, yeah, yeah, I didn't, yeah, yeah. I got that about 62% right and 37% wrong. You know. So purity of heart is the key to seeing. And our problem is we don't see right. We are only able to see what the eyes of the heart allow us to see. And resembling God in his purity is the key to seeing God. To see God, one must be like God. Vision is enabled by purity of heart. And that brings us to the second point, seeing God. Seeing God. Here I give you a book recommendation. Hans Bersma, Dutch Reformed theologian, Seeing God, the Beatific Tradition, Beatific Vision in the Christian Tradition is a stunning book. Won all kinds of awards five years ago. Anyway, let's talk about seeing God. This breaks into two pieces. Again, surprise to no one. One is the already, one is the not yet. Seeing now, seeing later. Seeing now, seeing later. So first, seeing God now. We can see God now. Not directly, but by the eye of faith, we see God really. Right? Paul speaks of having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you know the hope of your calling. Because God has appeared. He has manifested. He has stooped down, and we can see him and touch him and handle him in Jesus Christ, who says to us, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is an astonishing thing, the incarnation. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. John says in his first epistle, we, we touched him, we handled him. We have seen, John says, Jesus' glory, which is the glory of the only begotten Son of the Father. This is the grand privilege of living in the new covenant, right? which hadn't happened for centuries and millennia before that. We live in the new covenant. We have seen God. What faith does, and here remember, we're talking about the faith that comes from the single and the pure heart. What faith does is it sees God. Faith is a kind of seeing. It's a mode of seeing. Right? Like Moses, this is in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, right? we endure by seeing him who in and of himself is invisible, but who nonetheless has appeared in Jesus Christ. It takes purity of heart to see the risen and ascended Christ. He's now ascended, so he's actually taking his physical, visible presence out of this world. It takes purity of heart to see him. And then seeing him, right, we see Jesus, that in turn enhances our purity. So there's, this, there's a loop I want you to get. Here's, I call this the biblical feedback loop. The pure see, and seeing increases the purity. Right? The pure see, and then seeing increases our purity. So let's expand the beatitude and paraphrase it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
and increase their purity of heart, thus attaining greater vision. You know where you see this? Many places, but there's a beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the risen Lord. Right? And this is yours now, right? By faith. We behold the glory of the risen Lord. We are being transformed into that same image. From one degree of glory to another degree of glory. So gazing, right? Paul says, we behold. Gazing is the mother of glory. Contemplation begets conformity. The risen Christ is trying to transform you into the glory that he now has. So all of our moral effort and all of our spiritual energies are not aimed at becoming wonderful people. They're aimed at our great end, right? The pure in heart... They burn with a desire to see God. Right? That's what Jesus says in this beatitude. That vision, right? this is why we die to sin. This is why we take up the cross. This is why we repent. This is why we attend to the word. Remember Augustine? I hope some of you remember this. I got, I've mentioned it a couple times. I think Augustine says the word of God, the scriptures are the face of God for now. I don't know if there's a more beautiful title for Holy Scripture than that. The face of God for now. It tells you a lot about Augustine, right? It tells you that he's interested in in seeing God's face. And he knows later there'll be a way to see it. But for now, I can also see it, right, through the Holy Scriptures. It's almost like you can picture Augustine, right? His, his, His hands and his mind going over the text, right? Looking for the liniments and the lines and the creases in God's own face, trying to grasp the face of God, right? This is why we attend to Scripture, because it's the face of God for now. And that's the face we want. That's why we attend to the sacraments. The sacraments could be called the wedding supper of the Lamb for now, right? These things point. So the glory of this vision in the Beatitude begins now. It's underway. But... And this can never be forgotten, right? At every point now in this age, we see. But we also see through a glass darkly. So secondly, and as usual, this is where Jesus' emphasis lies. We shall fully see later. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see in the eschaton God as fully as creatures are capable of seeing God's immediate glory. Then seeing will not be by faith, or through signs, or through word, or through sacrament. Right? These things will vanish. It'll be direct, immediate apprehension, seeing by sight. God is, is thrice holy. He dwells in unapproachable light. No man can see him or has seen him, Scripture says. Only the splendor of light hideth thee. And thus nothing but that which is utterly pure, wholly unmixed, absolutely single, can stand in his presence. Right? There are two options here. Be incinerated or stand before the glory of God in utter, transcendent, luminescent, unstained purity. Though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see. 
Thus, purity of heart now leads to fully human, glorified holiness later. For as we heard in the New Testament lesson from Hebrews, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. What an astonishing scripture. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is why this beatitude, Calvin could say, is the mother of all virtue. It's an indispensable beatitude. Without utter and absolute holiness, in and through the grace of Christ, of course, by his purifying blood, of course. But holiness really worked out and wrought in us, in the deep interior recesses, in the secret places of the heart, without total holiness, without human transfiguration, not one person will see the Lord. Not one. Holiness is for vision. Nothing unclean, Revelation tells us, enters the gates of the New Jerusalem. Nothing unclean. Now in the church, things unclean enter. We enter. And to fail to obtain that vision is the great tragedy. For you were created for this final end, this great fellowship, this grand conclusion. It is the hope of Job, for example, to see his Redeemer. Job 19. It's the hope of the psalmist. Psalm 11, Psalm 17. All the way through the psalms. And here's Augustine on it. To behold God is the end of all our loving activity. Who talks like that today? To behold God is the end of all our loving activity. To listen to Augustine, right, is to feel like I'm living my whole life in some shadowy, murky lowland. So, in his first epistle, you saw this in the call to worship today. John says, we know that when he appears, when he manifests his glory, when he appears, we shall be like him. Why is this so? Why is it that when he appears, we shall be like him? Well, John tells us. He says, because we shall see him as he is. To resemble him in purity is to see. The final coming seeing of Jesus will mean complete resemblance to Jesus. Seeing creates purity, and purity enhances seeing. And John distills it beautifully there in 1 John 3. And you know how he concludes that? So what's the takeaway? What's the takeaway for John about this? When Christ appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. Here's what he says. And everyone that has this hope purifies himself. Purifies himself, even as he is pure. Only purity, small p, sees purity, capital P. The greatest blessing of the saints in the new heavens and new earth is, as the book of Revelation tells us, they shall see his face. I have a very good friend who died this week. Very close friend of mine in Austin, Texas. Celebrated attorney. Died without warning. Died suddenly. Left a wife. Left five kids. Left a couple grandkids. 
66 years old. Ruling elder in the PCA church there, Redeemer Prez in Austin. And whatever it is that was, you know, consuming a person's attention. He died on Monday morning. On Sunday night, you know, lawyering the next day, the kids, the grandkids, the house, the job, the finances. You know what it's about for him right now, according to our confessions? He is before the face of God in light and glory. It's all face of God all the time for him from now on forever. All face of God, nothing else. Boom. Now, that doesn't mean all the other concerns he had on Saturday and Sunday were unimportant. It just means they're going to look different to him now. This face of God thing, pretty important. It's like all the hosts of heaven do. It's all the saints do. It's all the departed righteous do. Day and night in unending glory and worship of the triune God before his face. And it takes a bomb falling a little close to us from above, like a friend dying, to realize, oh yeah, that's it. You know, I'm worried about this, I'm worried about that, I'm worried about this, I'm worried about that. Here's my friend. He's now before the face of God in light and glory. So seeing the face of God should be really important to you. You know why? You're going to see it really fast. <laughs> right? Really, really fast. I remember having kids, like I see out here, about the age of some of you kids. That was like a blink. In a blink of an eye, I, look, I don't mean to scare you, but in a blink of an eye, you're going to look like this. Right? And then in another, and then in another blink, you're going to be before the face of God in light and glory. And some stranger that you don't even know is going to be living in your house. Right? So, I want to close with Augustine again because he talks in this way. Here's Augustine. Yes, we wish to see God. Who does not have this desire? We strive to see God. We are on fire with the desire of seeing God. What? These are Augustine's words. We are on fire to see God. Who doesn't want this? But pay attention. These are his words now, not mine. I'll tell you when I'm done with him. It's a long quote. Pay attention to the saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Provide yourself with this means of seeing God. So let me, this will be me here. I'm going to stop. You might think, well, what's this all about? Well, you can see God now, right? So attend to the heart. Get the heart cleansed and purified because there's an immediate reward. You can have a clearer sense of God and of people and of your vocation and of your calling, right? There's a a beautiful light that's going to break into your life, right? Augustine says, provide yourself with this means of seeing God, this purity of heart. Why would you, he says, while your eyes are bleary, desire to see a sunrise? Let your eyes be sound and then the light will be full of joy. This is a joyful beatitude, even now, especially later, but really now. This is a grand beatitude. You know, yes, it's convicting. We realize our hearts are not pure. But Jesus tells us this so that we can start to see God. If your eyes are blind, Augustine says, the light itself will be a torment. Unless your heart is pure, you will not be permitted to see what cannot be seen unless the heart be pure. Thus ends Augustine. So what do we do? We purify ourselves even as he is pure. And that means we keep fleeing to him. 
Don't go back to the law here. You go to Christ in the gospel. He has purified you. He will purify you. He's going to take our divided and our fragmented hearts and he's going to unite them so that we can see him in part now and fully in unending joy and delight and rest later. Amen.